Now, we are in Romans 12. Uh, We are in this series talking about what it means to be living sacrifices. That's what it really means to be a disciple, is to offer your body as a sacrifice to God. And this is not something for spiritual overachievers, right? This isn't for the people who say, I want to be, when we get to heaven, I want to be the ones who have the crowns on their heads that everybody celebrates. No, this is for every believer. This is the basic Christian life. And if you're not living this way and you wonder why isn't the Christian life uh, giving me this abundant living that Jesus promised, well, that's why, because you're not really following him. I'm not saying you're not really saved because you're saved by grace, but I'm saying you're not living out the life that God called you to live, offering your body as a living sacrifice. Now, uh, years ago, some of you know that when I was in college, I trained to be in the world of broadcasting, not ministry. God called me after college, after marriage, in fact. Um, I, and in college, for about half the time I was there at U of H, I was an intern at Channel 13 in the sports department. And I didn't make any money. It was an unpaid internship, but talk about a fun job. I loved working there. Um, so one of the things I got to do once, I, I got to go to my first NFL game as part of that. Uh, what happened was they needed someone after the game to go into the opposing team's locker room and just hold a microphone at the, at the coach's press conference. That's all I had to do. Now, it was the Oilers against the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland Browns coach at the time was a, a guy you may have heard of named Bill Belichick. It was his first coaching job, first head coaching job. As it happened, the Oilers came back and won in the last seconds of the game. So Bill Belichick was the angriest human being I had ever seen in my life. And I'm standing there five feet away from him with my, with my microphone in my trembling hand, hoping that he doesn't burst into flames and consume us all in the fires of his wrath. Um, meanwhile, I'm looking around and I'm realizing... Everyone in this room is massive. I mean, these are huge people. I I knew guys on the UH football team. They were big dudes, but nothing like this. These guys, they look like a cartoonist had drawn someone who was a giant with massive muscles, and they were just all walking around just making me feel intimidated. And there was one guy, aside from the fat reporters, right? There was one guy who was normal-sized, who who, uh, was about my roughly my size, and that was the kicker. And his name was Matt Stover. And I remember looking over at him and he made eye contact with me and he kind of gave me a little smile and a nod as if to say, you know, welcome to the locker room, fellow normal sized human. Um, <laughs> but I, I've always liked that guy and I've always really had an affinity for kickers and, and a sympathy for them because if you think about it, and I know if you're not a football fan, trust me, I'm not going to talk about football the whole time. Just stick with me. But if you watch a game, there's these giant athletic men who are like modern day gladiators who bleed and sweat and toil for an hour. And then this little normal sized guy at the very end of the game comes trotting out. He's got one job and that is to kick the field goal that wins the game. And sometimes he misses. And I always think to myself, how can you go back into that locker room after you've missed? I mean, you had one job. Everybody else just laid it on the line. You've been sitting around just, you know, drinking coffee and, and you walk out and you, do, you, miss, you miss your one kick. And I know the coach would say, well, it's not really his fault. We should have, shouldn't have put it in his position. But still, I always feel sorry for those guys. So last week, as we talked about living sacrifices, we talked about how that's not something you can do on your own. You need a team around you. And that is the church. 
And I challenged you last week, if you don't know your role in this body of Christ, if this is your church family, find your role. Find what God put you here to do. Start volunteering for ministry. Find the gift that God gave you and and do that job to the best of your abilities, to the glory of God. But there's something even more important than ministry that you can do for this church. The most important thing you can do is what we're going to talk about today. He says in verses 9 through 13, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. So verse 9 is a shift in tone in the whole chapter. Now it's about love from this point on. It says, let your love be genuine. And from this point on in the chapter is about how to love. Next week, we'll see for the next two weeks, chapter, uh, verses 14 through 21 are about how to love people outside the church. But these verses, these five verses are about how to love people in the church. And there's 13 separate commands in here. Y'all, I'm going to give you some good news right now. This is not a 13-point sermon, Okay. Thank you for not shouting amen, but yeah, it's, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the three, three adjectives that define the kind of love that's described here, the kind of love we should have. But let me just say this first. You don't want to be the one. In the same way, a, a kicker can come out and lose the game for the team. You don't want to be the one member of the body of Christ who destroys God's work, who divides God's people who causes anger and, and division and frustration, who, who causes rumor-mongering, who, who splits people apart. You don't want to be the reason that someone leaves the church. You don't want to be the reason someone says, well, I don't believe anything those people have to say. Have you seen how they treat one another? And we've all been in churches where that happened, if you've been in church for very long. Sad to say. I don't want to stand in front of Jesus someday even though I know he's going to forgive every sin because he died for my sins, I don't want to stand before him and say, Lord, I was the one who divided First Baptist Conroe. I was the one who caused unnecessary controversy, who, who split people apart, who, who, set, who set this person against that person and, and made things uh, uh, ugly in that congregation, and therefore people were driven away, and therefore people didn't believe the gospel. I don't want to say that to Jesus. In fact, the very thought gives me anxiety, and it should give you anxiety. So how do we avoid that? Well, these three adjectives describe the kind of love that God calls for within the body of Christ. The first one is active. It should be an active love. And I say that because I know what some of you are thinking, because I've thought this too. Lord, how can you command me to love everybody in my church? I don't even like everybody in my church. There are people in my church that they're just not my cup of tea. We don't jive. We don't have anything in common. And maybe for you, I'm that person, right? I'm that person. And if that's the case, this has got to be the worst 30 minutes of your week. So kudos to you for sticking with it. But but God doesn't say you must like everyone in the church. Now, what I've learned is that when I choose to love someone that I don't really like, when I consistently choose to love that person, I start to like them. I start to see their good qualities. I start to see the reasons why God made them in the first place and brought them into my life. So what do I mean when I say, when I choose to love them? Because let's face it, 
Love is not about emotion. It's not about sentiment. Do you think, and I'm serious, do you think that Jesus died on the cross because he liked you? Did he look at you and say, this is a really admirable person. They, they must be saved. I can't let this person get away because they are too good. It's not what the scriptures tell us. Romans 5.8 is just one that says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were his enemies. He should have hated us. Instead, he said, I'm going to choose to die in his, in her place. He chose. He chose to put you ahead of him. That wasn't an act of emotion. That wasn't an act of, of sentiment or affection. That was, that was a choice that he made. That is active love. It is doing something, not waiting until you feel something. That's what I mean. Now, Let's talk more about choosing to love. If you've been in church for long, uh, you've probably heard preachers try to show off by pretending they know Greek, okay? And one of the best ways they do that, you've heard this one. Did you know, did you know that in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, there are actually four different words for the English word love? You know, we have one word love. The, the Greeks had four words for that love, and they all mean different things. So I'm going to give you those four words, okay? Uh, eros which is a sexual erotic love. Secondly is phileo, which is brotherly love, which is the love you have within friendship. Uh, the third one is agape. Agape is uh, the love of God. It's, it's self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And then the fourth is storge, which is the love you have within a family, the kind of love you have for the people who are related to you. Now, I mention all that because in, in, uh, in, in verse 10, there are two of those four verbs, two of those four words. Uh, when it says, love one another uh, with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection is phileo. That's that brotherly love within friends. But love one another is storge. That's the love you have within a family. Now, let's think about that a moment. You don't choose your family. You can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your relatives, right? I'm sorry. That's no good. But... Uh, I may not use that on the other two, but uh, <laughs> but you're stuck with your family and you love them anyway. If you're in a healthy family, and I, I understand some of you didn't come from healthy families. Maybe you're not in a healthy family now, but you've seen healthy families. In a healthy family, you may not always like each other, but you choose to love. Maybe you have a sister, and you and that sister are like oil and water. You just always get on each other's nerves. Anytime you're together, one of you ends up angry, if not both of you, and yet you love her. You have this uncle, and this uncle is just the most opinionated person you know, and about nine times out of ten, he's wrong. He's read something on the internet, and he's spouting as if it's truth, and you just roll your eyes every time you're around him, but you love the man because he's your uncle. He's your dad's brother, your, your mother's brother. Uh, that's what it means to, to have this kind of love. That's the kind of love that's being called for here. He, he goes on and says, outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor, to show honor to someone means I'm going to take some action or say some word that lets you know you matter. I'm going to show honor to you. I'm going to make you feel special. Well, that's what we do in a family, don't we? That sister may annoy me, but you know what? When it's her birthday, I'm going to throw a birthday par party for her. When she's in the hospital, I'm going to go visit. 
That uncle, man, he may just blather on and on, and I may roll his eyes when he talks, but he's still coming to my house for Thanksgiving. I'm not going to disinvite him. In fact, we'll laugh at some of the things he says. And, and you know, when he's sick, I'm going to pray for him. He's my uncle. I love him. And that's the love that's being called for here. It, it says, I love you not because of who you are, not because of how you perform. I love you because you're part of my family. You're part of First Baptist Conroe. And, and so I choose to show you honor, to outdo you in showing honor. Now, here comes the hard part. Because love isn't just tender, it's also tough. And that's why Paul says, abhor what is evil cling to what is good. Abhor is sort of a, a, an old-fashioned old word for hate. Hate what is evil. Uh, notice, nowhere in the Bible were we commanded to, to hate sinners because Jesus died for sinners, but we are commanded to hate what is evil, and we don't often do that. So I'm about to bring some, some Christian dirty laundry out on the table because it's something we need to, we need to talk about and confront. Over the past 20, 30 years, one of, the, one of the real devastating things that's happened in the American church is the revelation of how much sexual abuse has existed in churches. And it started in the Catholic church, and then more digging was done, and we found out, well, it's going on in evangelical churches too. And, and it went on in any organization that has children or, 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 or women in places of authority, like you know, the Me Too movement in 2017 showed that it's in the media, it's in the corporate world, uh, uh, scandals in the Boy Scouts and other, other groups that work with children. Anytime there's a vulnerable population, these things are going to happen. But you expect better of God's people, don't you? And you should. And what we've seen is story after story in which uh, a volunteer was abusing children and the church didn't let any of the parents know. Or a pastor was abusing his authority and, and having relationships with, with women. He's a married man, they're married women. He's taking advantage of his authority, his position of authority, and they just let him quietly resign. And then he's able to go and work in another church and do the same thing again. And it's devastating, it's horrific, and it angers uh, the Lord beyond anything we can imagine. And, and when these churches were interviewed, they would say things like, well, I mean, we heard rumors, but we didn't really want to dig any deeper because we didn't really want to know. Or, uh, you know, I, I hated to judge because I know I'm a sinner too. And, or they would say, I, I was afraid that something would hurt the reputation of the church and might drive people away. And so all of these people said things in sincerity that essentially meant I was trying to do the nice thing. I was trying to keep things nice and peaceful and content. But that's not love. When there's evil, love confronts. When there's evil, love speaks a hard word. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceptive are the kisses of an enemy, says the proverb. Sometimes love has to hurt. And I know most of the examples that we can give of, of abhorring what is evil aren't that extreme. I mean, maybe, maybe you know someone, a, a fellow Christian, and their marriage is struggling, and you know it's because that person, your friend, is just cold toward his or her spouse, and you need to confront them and say, try being kind once in a while. Or, or maybe you know a friend, a, a Christian, who's struggling with some addiction, and they won't admit it and get any help. Or maybe you know someone, and you, you were maybe one of your friends, you saw an interaction between them and another church member where they were just downright rude. They were at fault. And you have to go to them and say, listen, you, it's, it, this is on you. You need to apologize. Now, in none of those cases is that person going to say, well, thank you for telling me that. You've blessed me today. 
you're probably going to have some serious anxiety before you have that conversation, but that's what love does. Love outdoes others in showing honor, often in encouraging and tender ways and sometimes in tough and painful ways, but always, always it is active. It is never passive. It is never waiting for the other person. It is on the move. Do you do that? Who do you need to show active love to today? So this is the second adjective that God is looking for in our love within the body of Christ, and that is spiritually mature love. There are six commands in verses 11 through 12, and and if you just took them out of context, you'd say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with love, and yet it's right there in this passage about love within the body of Christ. It's all about spiritual maturity. Well, what does that have to do with love? I think it has two things to do with love. Number one, when we grow in Christ, when we grow in spiritual maturity, we're showing love to others because our growth blesses everybody else in our church. If you grow, if suddenly you shoot up in your walk with God, that's going to inspire everyone around you. That's going to raise the level of expectations of all the people who know you. That can change a life group. That can change a church. When I was 15 years old, I grew up in a little country church, and every summer we would have a revival. Uh, We'd bring in an evangelist from outside, and often these were older guys and sometimes retired pastors, and I'm sure they did a great job. They just didn't reach, uh, you know, young young me. Uh, They just weren't speaking on my level. But I remember the one year we had this guy, I was 15, and his name was Kai Bowman. I remember that because he's today the pastor of a very large church in another city, and I'd never seen anything like him. He was on fire for Christ. He was dynamic. I remember when he'd preach, he would hold his Bible in his hand the whole time, and sometimes he'd tuck it under one arm, and he'd gesture with the other, and I thought, man, he looks like the Heisman Trophy. And I was just, I was really enamored with what I saw in him. And within a year, I had rededicated my life to the Lord. And in essence, I said, okay, I know that I was saved when I was nine, but now I need to really start living for him. I really need to start separating myself from everybody I know who's not a believer and, and start living a different kind of life that, that draws them to him. And it was in part, in huge part, because of what I saw in that guy just for one week. So love can do that. Love, uh, spiritual maturity can be an act of love because it, it inspires others. But secondly, I think these, pa- these commands, these six commands are in the middle of a passage about love because we're not loving by nature and we have to grow to the point that we're able to love. You don't just roll out of bed. You don't just come out of your mother's womb loving, do you? We're we're users by nature. We, We use those around us to comfort us, to feed us, to nurture us, and we give nothing back until we grow in maturity and are able to say, hey, I need to love that person. Let me ask you something. If somebody offered you a million dollars, if you could finish a marathon six months from now, and I don't mean walk it, I mean run it, would you train? Or would you just sit on the couch for six months and wake up six months from now and think, okay, I'll give it a shot? No, of course not. Put it a different way for those of you that don't ever run. Uh, (laughs) If you had a dream job and it was offered to you, but first you had to go away for three months for intensive training, would you do it? Or would you say, ah, it's not worth it? Spiritual maturity is training in the art of loving others and loving Christ. That's all it is. 
I don't know if you, that goes against the way a lot of us think. We think, okay, to become spiritually mature means I'm gonna know a lot about the Bible and I'm gonna be good at saying no to certain vices and I'm gonna be more faithful in showing up to church, which all three of those are good. But if that's all you have, guess what I just described? The scribes and the Pharisees that hated Jesus in the Bible. So what separated disciples of Jesus was they had all that stuff, but they also loved So spiritual maturity, real spiritual maturity is growing in your ability to love others. Are you growing in that ability right now? Are you growing in spiritual maturity? And are you seeing that not as a way of being superior to people who are out there in the world? Is it not, are you not growing so that others within the church will be impressed with you for being such a righteous person? Instead, are you saying, I want to grow in my ability to love my spouse, my children, my siblings, my friends, my enemies, my fellow church members? See, the people in this body, they need to know they're loved. And you can be that person who makes them understand you matter to God, you matter to me, but you have to grow in Christ in order to make that happen. You can only fake it so long. You have to grow into spiritually mature love. And then finally, number three, Generous love. Our love needs to be generous. He ends this section in verse 13 by saying, contribute to the needs of the saints. By the way, many of you know this, but I just want to make sure, the word saints has absolutely nothing to do with statues in a church or with people that we read about in books. The saints, whenever the Bible talks about saints, uses the word saints, it simply means the holy ones, the holy people. It means Anybody who belongs to Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? You're a saint. There you go. You are a saint. How do we contribute to the needs of the saints? We look for opportunities to meet their needs. You know, this is what the early church was known for. This is one of the things that that caught the attention of the Roman world. There's a quote from one of the critics of Christianity, a Roman named Lucian of Samosata. This is a guy who was just hated the spread of the Christian faith. And he wrote to a friend, he was complaining. He said, their founder persuades them they should be like brothers to one another. And therefore they view all their possessions as common property. Saying, look at these, these Christians, they don't seem to understand. You're supposed to keep everything for yourself. They don't seem to understand that life is a game and the, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Here they are giving everything away. And that's one of the reasons the Christian faith spread. And I have seen it happen many times. You don't, you don't hear this, and this isn't, this isn't common knowledge, but Christians that I've known are the most generous people I've known. And they do it anonymously. And I've been the conduit of that. Many times someone has come to me and said, hey, I know so-and-so has got a lot of medical bills or so-and-so struggling with their rent or so-and-so lost their job. Here, here's this envelope. I want you to give it to them, but don't tell them who it came from. I don't know how many times I've had that opportunity. That's one of the pleasures of my job. Or or I find out that this person over here, their car broke down, they can't get to work anymore, and somebody else says, well, I've got a car. Uh, My wife and I can share our other car. Why don't you borrow this for a while until you can get yours fixed? Or or another person, their, their house catches fire and they lose everything, and so their life group takes up a collection to try to replace what was lost. And, and then another person says, well, I've got a spare room. Your kids can stay over here, and, and you and your wife can, can stay in this person's house until insurance kicks in. And, and this is what the body of Christ does. And some of you have been part of that. I'm not going to look you in the eye because I don't want to embarrass you, but I know people in this room who've done things like that. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be is contributing to the needs of the saints, but not just waiting for an emergency situation. 
Every time you tithe, you understand that God is taking that money and he's using it to bless people in this church and bless people around Conroe and Montgomery County and even around the world. And if you go above and beyond your tithe and you give to our benevolence fund, that enables us to help people you probably don't ever hear about who come to us in quiet and secret and say, I can't pay my bills. I'm about to lose my house. I've got this struggle. I need help. And our benevolence committee is able to help them because of the generosity of people in this church. And by the way, it's not just about money and possessions. So the last thing he says in this passage is show hospitality. It's an interesting word, hospitality, because it comes from two Greek words. It's, it's, it's pronounced philoxenia. Philos is friends. Xenia is strangers. So it's kind of an oxymoronic word. It's to treat strangers like friends. That's what hospitality is. When you treat a stranger like you would treat a friend, you're being hospitable. In the ancient world, what it meant was uh, Christians would have to move either because they were being persecuted in this city and they had to move to a new one or, or they were missionaries. And in those days, there weren't hotels. There were inns, but they were dangerous places. So if you were one of those Christians, you were hoping someone in the town you were going to would say, hey, are you a believer in Jesus? Come stay with me and my family until you get a place of your own. Now, what does that look like in today's world? What, is, what does hospitality look like in today's, uh, today's context? I, I think it means a lot of things, but here's where I think it starts for most of us. Just as a sidebar, I've traveled the last several years in Europe, I've traveled in the Middle East, and what I've seen is nobody has houses the size of our houses in America. I mean, you take the average middle-class house in Conroe, and it would be a mansion in England, in, in Greece, in Israel. What are we doing with those houses besides separating ourselves from one another in our individual rooms so we can have our individual screens? That's a different sermon. But what are we doing with these massive houses that God has blessed us with? Here's where I want you to start. Here's my challenge to you. Find somebody in this church that you don't know well, or maybe don't know at all, and invite them over. Especially if there's someone new and you're not sure if they've really fit in yet, or, or maybe someone you don't know well, but whenever you see them, you don't ever see them around anybody, and so you're worried that maybe they haven't made friends here yet. And, and just say, hey, come on over. We're going to we're going we're gonna to make brownies and, and play dominoes or we're going to watch the game or, hey, come on over. I'm gonna, my wife's going to make a roast and we'll just have dinner together. Try it. That's hospitality. That's the way it begins. That's my challenge to you. And you may find out that you're the reason that person doesn't leave our church. You may find out that that person came to our church. They weren't even a believer yet. They're just seeking spiritual truth and experiencing your hospitality led them to salvation. This is not, let me note, this is not me asking you to invite me over for dinner, although many of you have, and that's been a great privilege. But I'm not the one that needs hospitality. Y'all are great to me. How many people in this church no one ever speaks to, no one ever says, hey, come eat with us? What would it mean? And by the way, if there's a voice inside your head that says, well, I don't know, they may already have friends and I don't want to treat them like they're new if they've been here five years, that is the devil talking. I guarantee you, no one is going to be offended if you walk up to them and say, hey, I don't know you well, come on over to my house. If they say no, that's okay. They may already have friends and that's fine. But try it. You've got nothing to lose. 
So I mentioned Matt Stover, the kicker for the Cleveland Browns. The Browns later became the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, They're playing today, this afternoon, in fact. But I looked him up when I was studying for this sermon. And what I found out was Matt Stover, number one, is a Christian. There are videos of him giving his testimony in his church, and he's very good. But he also was a very successful kicker. When I saw him that time, he was a rookie. He had a 20-year career, won two Super Bowls, is now in the Ravens' ring of honor. You know, I mentioned how a kicker can lose the game for his team, but he can also win a game. And he lost, he won a lot more games for his team than he lost. In the same way, you and I can be people who divide our congregation, or we can be the glue. We can be the glue that holds people together. We can take it upon ourselves to be extra loving because we know some of, our, some of our members aren't there yet. They're still stuck on themselves. We can be the glue that binds people together. We can be extra patient. We can be extra hospitable. We can be extra loving to hold God's people together for his sake and for his glory. And you need to ask yourself, which one of those am I? Am I the, pe- am I the one that causes trouble and divides and stirs the pot? Or am I the glue that holds people together? Now you may ask, and I'll close with this, is this really an important thing, Jeff? Is this really worth a whole sermon? Shouldn't you preach you know, the, the good stuff, the hard stuff? Read the New Testament sometime, and I dare you to find a book in the New Testament that doesn't talk about the unity of God's people. Look at John 17, as Jesus is about to be arrested. He's the only one that knows, I am about to be arrested, and I'm not going to have a normal life ever again. And the last thing on his mind, the thing he prays about in John 17 is, Father, make them one. He's talking about his disciples, and he's talking about you and me. I pray that they would be one, as, as you and I, Father, are one. And then he let himself be taken and nailed to a cross, which opened the way for us to be saved forgiven and reborn to become God's sons and daughters. So yeah, yeah, this is important. Jesus thought it was worth dying for. Be the glue that helps bind us together in love. I am grateful for the unity of this congregation. I'm grateful that this is a mostly drama-free church. I'd like for it to increase in that. And I think Jesus would too.